Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, loyal disciple of Dr. Joyce Brothers. Oh, Dr. <laughs> Joyce Brothers. I had kind of forgotten about her until watching this movie that we're talking about in this episode. And uh, in this season, we've been talking about the films of 1977. And this episode is Jason's pick. So why don't you introduce this one for us, Jason? This is a film uh, called High Anxiety by Mel Brooks. And uh, as he expertly does on so many genres, this is his satire, his spoof, his send up of Alfred Hitchcock films. And uh, it's done lovingly. And you could tell there is a reverence for Hitch. And obviously the two were friends in real life. And uh, Hitch actually had some input on uh, the script here. So it's um, maybe not as well known as Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein. But to me, there's so much funny stuff in here. And it's so enjoyable that um, I think it deserves to be up there with uh, the the top level of Mel Brooks movies. Okay. Um, so I guess I was going to say, why did you pick this? But that was a very good uh, explanation. And I, I assume... Well, you Josh, had, I'll uh, tell you why I picked it. This is a film by Mel Brooks. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, never yeah. mind. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um <laughs> This movie, I, I mean, I think this movie came, you mentioned Young Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles, and th this movie was was part of a very successful period for Mel Brooks coming on the heels of those movies, which, as you say, are probably more well-known and more well-regarded now, but um, all of them were, were successful at the time. This movie was a box office success. It grossed $31 million on its budget of $4 million. And it was actually nominated for a couple of Golden Globes for uh, Best Picture, Comedy or Musical, and Best Actor in a Comedy or Musical for Mel Brooks. I feel like this kind of movie, even though the Golden Globes are, shall we say, wacky, um, <laughs> this kind of movie probably would not get a Golden Globe nomination right now, uh, today, I would Yeah, think. and what's interesting about the Mel Brooks nod is that this is, you know, he starred in Silent Movie, but this is his first starring speaking role in one of his own movies. So that's kind of fun. Yeah, and he actually, uh, because of the part that he gave himself, he actually kind of plays it straight a lot of the time, that the comedy, the, the over-the-top silliness comes from other characters for a lot of this movie. Uh, that's a good point, Josh. You know, um, I know obviously uh, they wanted Gene Wilder, at least was in the discussion, who's, you know, the as good a comic actor as there ever was, but I guess, you know, he was uh, doing something else at the time, but that was another um, thing that I wanted to point out, but you pointed out, Josh, so you're a good boy. You get a oh, treat. Oh, thank you. Um, right, Cause you're right, you're right. You know, like, especially around this time, Mel Brooks is playing like a Yiddish speaking Indian or, you know, something big and, and grandiose. And here he's, the straight man for a lot of it. And um, he, he does. He plays it right down the middle for the most part. He does, which, uh, I mean, he succeeds at, but at the same time, maybe it feels like it's a, a misuse of his own presence in a way. This movie was, it got mixed reviews. And it seems, uh, again, as you were pointing out, other Mel Brooks movies from this period have, have much uh, stronger 
more enduring reputations. But even at the time, critics were kind of mixed on this. Um, Roger Ebert said, one of the problems with Mel Brooks's high anxiety is that it picks a tricky target. It's a spoof of the work of Alfred Hitchcock, but Hitchcock's films are often funny themselves. And satire works best when its target is self-important. It's easy for the National Lampoon to take on the Reader's Digest, but can you imagine a satire of the National Lampoon? Almost all of Hitchcock's 53 or so films have their great moments of wit. And wit, the ability to share a sense of subtle fun with an audience, is not exactly Mel Brooks's strong point. He takes such key Hitchcock moments as the shower scene from Psycho and the climbing scene from Vertigo and the shooting in North by Northwest, and he clobbers them. It's not satire, it's overkill. And All right, all right Ebert, let's go. Let's go. Me and you, Ebert, right now. Hey, hey <laughs> right Ebert. Now. Hey, Ebert, I got something to say here. So uh first of all, I you know, and I had read that that is a consistent criticism of like, well, you're already spoofing something that's funny, you know, and it's like, yeah, that that is a false premise to me. Sure, there's there's humor in Hitchcock movies, but to just say you can't do a satire of something that involves humor is one self-defeating and two, like why shouldn't Mel Brooks, who I think is probably the most genius comic mind of the 20th century, like take a shot at something more difficult than, you know, going the easy route, which, you know, like we said, springtime for Hitler, maybe that's what they're talking about. I also think, sure. There's a lot of like, you know, very obvious hang a lantern jokes, but he does some really clever stuff, especially with the camera, you know, shooting under the table where um, they're putting, you know, different coffee cups and uh, plates down and how the camera has to move. And he's not pointing that out to the audience. You're watching it and it's happening. So I'm just going to disagree with the entire premise that this is the only um, you can only spoof something that takes itself so seriously. Right. Well, I agree. I mean, I think certainly it maybe it's easier to, to spoof something that takes itself seriously, but there's no reason that you can't make fun of something that's funny. And and I love Hitchcock, and I agree there's humor in Hitchcock's movie, but I think some movies, but I think some of these reviews, and, and as you pointed out, this is a common criticism of this movie, I think maybe they're overstating the humor in Hitchcock a little much. I mean, it's nowhere near Mel Brooks' levels of humor. So, I yeah, I, I think it's, I, I, I agree with you that... The premise is is perhaps flawed. I, however, agree with these reviewers that Mel Brooks doesn't necessarily succeed. And I think in a way, partly it's because of what you mentioned, that he loves Hitchcock so much and collaborated with Hitchcock that maybe he's pulling his punches. That in order to really satirize something, especially something that's not serious and self-important, you need to like go at it. And this movie does not do that at all. Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's fair. It definitely is. It's definitely done with love, right? As yes. like, he's not trying to um, take the piss out of him, so to speak. He's, he's really sending him up with reverence. Yes. Yes, he is. Vincent Canby in the New York times was uh, more favorable. He said in high anxiety, the story of the flawed Dr. Richard H. Thorndike's coming to terms with his neurosis Mr. Brooks remembers all sorts of Hitchcock films, including The Lodger, Rebecca, Psycho, Vertigo, and The Birds, and a lot of the film's fun is sharing his affection. That the enjoyment tends to be cerebral is confirmed, I think, by the fact that it's a movie that is almost as funny to hear about as to see. 
What will people feel about the film if they don't know Hitchcock from Hawks? That's Howard Hawks. Uh, after watching five and 10 year old children who'd never heard of Frankenstein collapsing with laughter at young Frankenstein, I suspect it won't make any difference at all. There's an infectiously funny rhythm to a Brooks film to which even the unenlightened can respond. And I think that is true in terms of young Frankenstein, but I feel like this movie is like, I, I can't imagine, aside from a handful of scenes, I, I feel like if you're not familiar with Hitchcock, you would not find this movie funny. Um, I think in overall, Mel Brooks, like it, it, his movies do work on more than one level. Like they said with Blazing Saddles, you don't have to know the history of Westerns to just know that's a hilarious movie or Young Frankenstein, like you said. I, I would agree with you here more. It is uh, narrow cast in that, like, the more you know about Hitchcock, you know, the funnier it's going to be. But uh, hey, man, I'm guaranteeing you. Kids were laughing all the way to the bank when uh, Mel Brooks was running from all the pigeons crapping all over him. So. Yeah, I guess so. Did you, uh, is this one that you watched with your daughter? No, no, it's not appropriate for a six-year-old, I don't think. I guess not. I don't know. Yeah, I suppose there's the weird S&M stuff in it. So I was just thinking of this review talking about five and 10-year-olds watching Frankenstein, and she's she's right in the in that sweet spot there. But I suppose, is this is this more vulgar than Young Frankenstein? Uh, I think maybe not, maybe, but I mean, it's, it's not as vulgar as, uh, Blazing Saddles. So that is true, you know, so Um, again, but I don't think it's, I don't think this movie's made, you know, again, it's it's not, it's not, movie's not made for six year olds. It's not, you know, like I bet you she could watch Spaceballs and enjoy that right now. Yeah, that Spaceballs definitely would appeal to six-year-olds. <laughs> and I say that as a fan of Spaceballs. So finally, Pauline Kael in The New Yorker did not like it. She said, this is a child's idea of satire. Imitations with a funny hat and a leer. There isn't a whisper of suspense, and there are few earned laughs. All Brooks does is let us know he has seen some of the same movies that we have. When he forgets about Hitchcock, he has a couple of buoyant sequences. He does a terrific parody of Frank Sinatra's hyper nonchalant singing style, breaking up words into sizzling syllables and tossing the mic cord from side to side and snapping it like a whip. And he and the heroine, Madeline Kahn, do an old Jewish couple vaudeville pattern number in the San Francisco airport. And I, I think that those two moments that she points out there are probably the funniest bits in the movie and they do have nothing to do with Hitchcock. And I, I definitely thought it was best. And that that vaudeville bit in the airport is one of the only moments when Mel Brooks is allowed to be silly, as we're pointing out, and isn't just the straight man. And I think that's probably the funniest thing in the whole movie. So I agree with you. I think, you know, basically when they get up to San Francisco and the second half of the movie starts, like it kind of hits that next level. Um, to be honest with you, if this movie was an hour and 25 minutes of static and then they just had that musical number in there i might have picked it anyway because it's so brilliant like (laughs) i mean it's as good as you know it's as good as putting on the ritz or sweet georgia brown like it's so good it's so and i honestly i don't think it would have been that funny if mel brooks was playing what you typically see mel brooks it's the fact that he's been this straight man this whole time and he lets loose as this like sinatra lounge singer and he's got patter and jokes for everything and like she said, he's doing professional style moves, like holding the mic uh, cord over his shoulder and for emphasis. So 
Um, yeah, that stuff's funny, but I mean, to me, it's not a separation of the movie. Like that just made the movie more enjoyable. It's like, hey, I'm enjoying the Hitchcock stuff, and I'm enjoying the not Hitchcock stuff. Yeah, I think I enjoyed. I mean, I enjoyed the Hitchcock stuff fine, and and having seen probably all of those Hitchcock movies at one point or another, I I recognize the references. But I think, as she points out, it's a lot of, and this is a problem with a lot of spoof movies where it's like it's not a joke; it's just pointing and getting the audience to recognize, hey, I know what that thing is. Oh, and the film also knows what that thing is. Give an example, Josh, of what you're thinking. Uh, give an example from this movie of that. I mean, I think the the bird shitting scene that you're talking about, it's like, I mean, I, I guess birds shitting on somebody is funny, but I feel like there's barely a joke there. It's just the idea that like, oh, look, there's birds, like in the birds, what if the birds shit on him. Yeah, it's but that's like, not the whole movie. It's a one minute bit and it's shot perfectly. Well, that's it's shot in the exact same style. Like, I mean, I think it's a right. good send up of that, of the of the premise of the birds, you know? I mean, it's it's shot in the exact same style because it's very good at recreating. And I and I, I think that that's one of the, the impressive things about this movie and about Mel Brooks directing this movie is that he really is good at recreating some of the kinds of things that Hitchcock did that are very sophisticated and complicated. But again, it's more, it's an imitation rather than a sat, it's not saying anything as a joke. It's not satire, you know? And that doesn't mean you can't laugh at it and doesn't mean that I didn't find some of the stuff funny. But again, I felt like the funnier stuff was the stuff where he actually is going beyond pointing something out and is actually making a joke, and that is the less Hitchcocky stuff. I mean, the Psycho scene where he recreates the shower scene, the famous shower scene from Psycho, and instead it's a newspaper. Again, it's it's just look, I can I can make the same shots that you remember from Psycho, and instead of a knife, I'm going to put a newspaper in them, and that's all. That's not it, no it no no. You're you're microcosming something that you need to look wider on, Josh. That whole character was set up, the Barry Levinson character, by the way, Barry Levinson, very famous director, kind of fun seeing him as this uh, uptight bellboy character, right? You know, for one thing, like we've set up this character as high strung, so we've set up why he's gonna come in for no reason. And for two, like the newspaper has been put there, um, one, to move the plot uh, in a certain direction, and two, because it's not just to, to recreate the shot, but it's to show the exact recreation in a different way with the ink dripping into the drain as opposed to the blood. So maybe it's not, oh, the best uh, all time, this or that, but like it's it's definitely a little um, more in depth than just the basic like, hey, I've recreated a shot for no reason. Yeah, I know. I mean, obviously, there's not there's not no reason. The reason is because we're doing Hitchcock here. And so you got to do that. That's one of the most famous Hitchcock things of all time. But I do think it is like, yes, okay, he doesn't literally recreate it. He replaces one thing with one other thing. Instead of blood going down the drain, it's ink. But again, it's just kind of this one-to-one -one replacement. And not that I didn't kind of smile at that scene, but I didn't feel like it, you know, it didn't, it didn't make me laugh as much as it wasn't unexpected in a way. You know, I feel like a lot of great humor is unexpected. And you watch this movie, if you know anything about Hitchcock, you're just waiting for the, the psycho shower scene. You know, I was sort of amazed that they didn't do the North by Northwest uh, biplane scene. To, yeah, I agree. I agree with you that 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 could have been in there and that would have been welcome to me. 
So I, you know, yeah, you know, sometimes things can just be funny and that's cool, man. You know? Yeah. I mean, I guess I just didn't find it that funny and, and things can be. And the stuff I found funny was the stuff that went beyond the Hitchcock. I I will say going back to this Pauline Kael review, one thing that I disagree and I don't understand why she is expecting this is she complains that there's no suspense as if this should be like an actual Hitchcock movie. And I definitely don't think this movie needs to be suspenseful. I mean, it's supposed to be funny. It doesn't need to build actual tension. So that I feel like she's completely off the mark on. Yeah. I just think the movie's funny and I, it's enjoyable the whole way through. So that alone is good enough. Like, you know, in a more modern uh, setting, you know, we know Dave, our producer right there, and I both love Wet Hot American Summer. And are they doing anything except like taking the tropes of summer camp and like just, you know, reversing them or moving them around a little bit? Like, is there a ton of commentary on it? No, it's just hilarious what they do, you know, and that's that's enough for me sometimes. Yeah, well, I mean, two things. One, I feel like good enough is not really a great standard to hold Mel Brooks to, um, <laughs> you know, and I think you would agree as as a big fan of Mel Brooks. Um, and, and two, I disagree with you completely about Wet Hot American Summer, which I don't even like that much, but I think that movie is full of... Uh, completely out there, crazy stuff that goes way beyond just recreating the stuff, the thing that they're making fun of. And a lot of it is maybe like just kind of nonsensical things that don't really fit together. That for me is why I'm not a huge fan of that movie. But I think to say that they're just recreating familiar moments, like exactly to, to have the audience recognize them is completely wrong. I mean, you can say that about uh, maybe some of the later Zucker Brothers movies or something like that. But I don't feel that way about Wet Hot American Summer. But no, but I'm not, I, I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that about high anxiety. I don't think it's just there to recreate. I think it's there because it elevates it in a comedic fashion. So they're taking the tropes and they're they're moving pieces around and, you know, they're accentuating certain things. And yeah, they're going out uh, on a limb with them. But I but I'm, I think the same thing about What Hot American Summer, you know, like, which I love as a movie, you know. So I just don't think it's a, it's, I just don't agree with the premise that all he did was recreate this lovingly and he didn't add anything to it. Yeah. I mean, he adds some. I feel like it doesn't add nearly as much as Wet Hot American Summer does, which I think is probably a better movie. But I don't think this is a bad movie. And I, 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 I as many criticisms as I have, um, I did mostly have a nice time in, in watching it. And I think it's just playing off the idea that the critics in general didn't seem to be all that into this movie at the time that it came out. And even now, maybe, I mean, I feel like as you, as you pointed out, this is considered sort of a lesser. I mean, I, I do think now it has a, it has a appreciation that it didn't have back then. And over the years, especially within the industry, like people love this movie and there are plenty of like talk shows or, um, you know, situations over the year where people just want to talk to Mel Brooks about this movie and his relationship with Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Hitchcock relationship, I think, is, is, a, is a cool thing. Um, so I'm going to assume that you had seen this maybe, you know, as a kid or I assume not, not as a six-year-old, but sometime when you were younger. When did you first see this? Uh, I saw this in college at Boston University. I had taken a uh, history of uh, comedy in cinema class. Okay. And it was pretty cool because, you know, you go through all the major figures. And, of course, we touched on um, 
the big movies of Mel Brooks. But this one just like kind of came out of nowhere. And I was like, man, there's there's a lot of like hilarious stuff in this. And sure, like, you know, like you're saying, like, okay, maybe it's not Wet Hot American Summer. But guess what? Blazing Saddles is Wet Hot American Summer. Young Frankenstein is uh, Wet Hot American. You know what I mean? So like, I just think this is a um a mel brooks movie who if you if you like mel brooks like you should see this movie it's there's so much funny stuff and you know he doesn't get enough credit for what he does as a director in any uh of his films like he's a really good director you know yeah i mean i agree with you there and and i think maybe because of the nature of this movie that he's recreating hitchcock who is certainly uh i mean in my opinion, probably the greatest director of all time. Um, he has to up his game in order to match what he's trying to parody. Um, but he does it really well. I mean, that was one thing that I was that I didn't necessarily expect that I was really impressed with was within this movie was the way that it was created visually, the way that it was directed. Um, and I had never seen this before. I've seen other Mel Brooks movies. I'm kind of neutral on Mel Brooks. Um, I loved Spaceballs as a kid, um, and I still have a certain affinity for it. And I like Young Frankenstein a lot, but uh, I don't really like Blazing Saddles. And I remember watching later Mel Brooks movies when those came out in the '90s, which I think a lot of people don't like, but are you know, and are not very good. Um, so I had never seen this one, and uh, but certainly as a as a Hitchcock fan, I think I appreciated, if didn't necessarily laugh at, the recreations going on in this film. Um, Dave, as a, as a parody fan, I guess we can say, were you familiar <laughs> with this one? Yes. Uh, I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. It was, you know, definitely one of the few Mel Brooks movies that I don't return to regularly, but I was really happy to finally get a chance to go back. All right. And did you like it? Well, isn't that section two? But yes, I, I, <laughs> I liked it very much. Well, yeah, then let's, uh, let's, uh, it, unless, uh, I wanted Jason... to do one more, one more point, Josh, you know, you yeah. as the, uh, I would say the foremost film historian on this show, you know? Sure. Um, I mean, you also got to take into account, like he knows he has to know Hitchcock inside and out for to spoof of course. That, that many on that expert level. Like, I mean, dude, like that's the entire film canon he's got there in his mind, you know, like, and technically yeah. to pull that off is a, is a big deal, you know? No, I agree. I'm not questioning his knowledge of Hitchcock. And like I said, his technical abilities were one of the things that I was pleasantly surprised by watching this movie, that I was very impressed with. It's clear that he knows Hitchcock very well and that he loves Hitchcock. I think his love for Hitchcock may actually hold him back in a way from making this movie better. Yeah, okay. I, and I, I will give you that as a fair criticism. So now, Josh, send us into our bumper, baby. Send us to the sponsors. Dave, get us a sponsor so we can move into segment two. <laughs> We'll be right back and talk our general thoughts on high anxiety. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1977, we've been talking about Jason's pick, Mel Brooks's High Anxiety, and I've been a little critical of it. So Jason, tell us again, you know, what, what is so great about this movie? Why do you love it? First of all, anytime you want to put like Mel Brooks, Cloris Leachman, Harvey Corman, and Madeline Kahn together, I'll watch them do anything. They could be, you know, making toast with jelly, and I'm sure they would make it hilarious. Like they're all so funny. 
And it's not my favorite of the Chloris Leachman performances that we've seen over the years, you know, but um, I think Madeline Kahn somehow is underrated. Like she's so good in everything. And, you know, I mentioned that musical sequence. She elevates it just by her the reaction shots when they cut to her, like, you know, um, how much she's enjoying and getting into it. Um, so I just um, like it's they don't really make good hour and a half comedies anymore, as we have discussed over the years. And this is fun and wacky and all that stuff. And it's like maybe with streamers that that can find a new life. But we haven't seen, I would say, a great uh, spoof or satire in in years. Like, what was the last good one? They came together was pretty good, I thought. But like, again, we're talking about the same group, the state group. Right. So um, there really hasn't been a great satire or a parody movie in a long time. Yeah, probably so. I mean, maybe we'll talk more about this in the legacy, but the I feel like that form has become kind of denigrated and it's gone from something that someone like Mel Brooks, who was considered a comedy genius, you know, even in his time, even when he made this movie and a comedy genius would make a parody movie, whereas now a parody movie is something that would only be made by a hack. You know? Yeah, lowbrow and <laughs> right. not another teen movie ever, or something like that. But yeah, you're right. right. But um, even when this was like in vogue, like, you know, he was doing it at a higher level than everybody else. Right, right. I mean, I think that that's part of it, too. It's not just that the the form isn't respected, is that the people who practice this form are nowhere near the level of Mel Brooks, certainly. And I, I want to point out, I agree with you about Madeline Kahn. She is so good in this movie and in all of the work that she did with Mel Brooks and in other movies in, in the 70s, mainly in the 70s and, and maybe in the 80s, which was kind of the height of her popularity, but she is completely underrated and her later career kind of didn't, you know, capitalize on the promise that she showed in these, in these films. And then uh, sadly she died relatively young. So, you know, she's not around now for us to uh, give her a, you know, for her to have a renaissance or something in the way that Cloris Leachman has. But she's great in this movie. And it's disappointing to me that she doesn't show up until halfway through the movie. I mean, at the beginning of the movie, She's she's second build behind Mel Brooks. And I saw that and I thought, oh, great. Madeline Kahn is in this movie. That's going to be great because I remember how amazing she is in Young Frankenstein. And I was waiting and waiting and waiting for her to show up. And, and I mean, she did eventually. But uh, and I felt like once she got there, the movie, she kicked the movie up into an, a, a higher gear and it was more enjoyable. But I really wish that she had shown up earlier. And we spend a lot of time with the Dr. Thorndike, Mel Brooks's character, in this, this institute for the very, very nervous. Um, and I feel like the movie opens up when he's able to leave and he goes to San Francisco and he meets Madeline Kahn's character and the story kind of gets crazier. And it's funnier then. And that's when he allows the comedy bits to come in that aren't just Hitchcock, the, the the musical number that we talked about and the the sort of vaudeville old Jewish couple bit that he and Madeline Kahn do, which are easily the funniest things in the movie. So I, I wish that they had moved all of that up, that they'd moved Madeline Kahn up, that they'd moved those crazy bits up because it was a little slower to get into comedy wise at the beginning. I mean, I agree with all of those points, you know, like that. I, I agree. The second half is better than the first half, you know? Um, yeah. Which is kind of nice because um, in an upcoming episode, hint, hint, maybe the next one, I think we're going to be talking about a film where I thought the first half was 
quite excellent. And then the second half kind of dropped off, you know. But if I were if I was going to defend that, besides from a story standpoint, I will say, you know, we've seen that in Hitchcock before. You know, even going to Psycho, where we don't see Anthony Perkins' character till what forty minutes into the movie. So, you know, you can say it, it is true to form. But yeah, I don't know. And in she and she plays it. You know, these characters are straighter in their comedy than we've seen them in in other. You know, Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, but still, like, they're just so good. They're just experts at comedy. They're so good. Like, um, I agree with you, but I, I'm glad. I'd rather like the movie more as it goes on. It's like when you have a meal and then you get to dessert. You don't want dessert to be disappointing. That's the last impression of the meal, Josh, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't want the end to be bad. I don't want to be disappointed by it, but I'd like to have been drawn in more in the beginning. And I think weirdly, you're right about Hitchcock. A lot of Hitchcock movies start slow and then build. But I think this actually goes to Pauline Kael's criticism, which I think she's wrong. And one of the reasons that it's okay that those uh, Hitchcock movies are structured that way is because those are our suspense movies. They are building right. suspense. And this movie is not that, and it shouldn't be that. Pauline Kael is wrong. But because it doesn't build suspense, it needs more you can't start as slowly as a Hitchcock movie would, I think. Yeah, um, I think that's fair. I mean, I don't I don't think it was as slow. I, do, I like enjoyed the first half, but I enjoyed the second half better. I do want to add one more bit because I agree with you. Those are the two funniest things. But I think the right up there is the scene right before the musical number where um, Thorndike is giving his speech to the, you know, um, at the therapist convention and whatnot and uh the one therapist shows up late and he's got his two little girls with him and mel brooks uh, has to change all of his language around so he's talking about a very adult subjects but not using any words that might be offensive to the ears of kids you know and using using the same type of words that uh kids would use to describe bodily functions or private parts in a uh, pg manner i thought that was very, very funny and expertly done as well. Yeah, that seems okay. I yeah, you're that. you're okay. I am okay. <laughs> At best, really, I think yeah. we can agree. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I, Jason, are you? I mean, obviously, you're a big Mel Brooks fan. Are you a big Hitchcock fan? Did you recognize most of the references in this movie? Um, I started studying Hitchcock in high school, actually, Josh. I don't know if you remember uh -huh. this. I had to, Josh and I went to the same private school, and I wanted to kind of study film and um our uh beloved mayor of las vegas carolyn oh, goodman who God. fyi did not have a good year if you've have seen any interviews with anderson cooper on cnn with her but she was she was very um supportive of at least me kind of exploring my boundaries and uh, or what i wanted to explore in high school creatively so she set up an independent study for me with uh, brad fuller who is the producer of like the Chainsaw Maskers and Amityville Horror and all the Michael Bay horror movies. And, you know, we I watched a ton of Hitchcock movies with him and, you know, kind of learned about Hitchcock through him and, you know, all the tropes and the things to look for. And of course, in college, you study Hitchcock more. I'm not going to I guarantee you, you've one watched more and two recognized more because I haven't really revisited Hitchcock in a while, although this movie definitely made me do it. But I recognized a good amount, but I'm, I think you recognize probably more. Did you have any favorites, Josh? Um, well, I did, I, I did kind of like 
that the entire structure of the movie really is based on Spellbound, uh, which is not one of the more obvious Hitchcock movies to pick. I mean, everyone recognizes Psycho and this, and you recognize Vertigo, you recognize the birds. And the other thing, of course, is that this is, you know, this was released at a time when there's no home video. So people aren't going to the video store to refresh their memories on Hitchcock. And so the more recent Hitchcock movies like The Birds and Psycho um, or North by Northwest, I think are, you know, fresher in people's minds if they're watching this movie. So I thought it was kind of bold of him to go all the way back to the 40s to Spellbound, which is a movie about a doctor who comes in to take over an institute for mentally disturbed people and has to deal with his own issues. I mean, that's essentially the, the main plot of this movie. So I kind of appreciated that. Spellbound also has these like crazy, like dream sequences kind of uh, being hypnotized. Like he, uh, like Mel Brooks's character gets hypnotized by Dr. Little Old Man here. And it has all this, this, <laughs> this weird surreal stuff that was actually designed by Salvador Dali. And I feel like that's something he could have parodied here that he he leaves that on sure. the table. I mean, that's, that's, that's ripe for, uh, for making fun of. But so I appreciated that. I mean, there's some smaller references to things like Rebecca, the, the, the uh, even building before, on the side, which is side even of the before cliff. Spellbound, right? Right, exactly, which is even before Spellbound. And that's a that's a smaller, briefer kind of bit. But yeah, I, I, I haven't, I mean, I love Hitchcock. I've seen tons of Hitchcock movies. And I like I said, I do think he's probably the greatest director of all time. But it's actually been a little while since I either revisited or watched a Hitchcock movie that I'd never seen before. So um, not every one of these is super fresh in my memory. In fact, after watching this movie, I went and looked up Spellbound to just make sure that I was correct about it because um, it's been a while since I saw it. But yeah, again, he's he's impeccable with his recreations of Hitchcock here. And it's not only Hitchcock. There are bits that parody other things. There's the assassin with the weird teeth, who's obviously a parody of Jaws from the James Bond movies. And I, I thought Cloris Leachman's character was probably kind of a parody of Nurse Ratched from uh, One Flew yeah. Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which just came out like two years earlier. And so, I mean, and that's, I think, what we expect more from parody movies now, is that instead of just parodying one thing, they just parody everything. They maybe use the structure of Hitchcock or of some other famous franchise, and but then they throw in jokes about whatever other movies happen to be recent. And I think that's part of what has you know, degraded the form, maybe. And he does it just enough that you recognize it, but not so much that it takes away from the Hitchcock focus. Yeah, I mean, you know, overall, this is, I think, a harder genre than people... Um, might realize because there have been so many bad parodies, you think, like you said, it's like a lesser form of comedy, but the great ones are great. You know, whether it's Mel Brooks or airplane or something like that, naked gun, the Zucker brothers stuff that we all like, you know? So, um, I'm, I don't, you know, comedy is an evolving form and you wonder like, there's gotta be someone out there who can, who can bring this, you know, like we said, wet hot was probably the last great, uh, parody of something. I wonder if someone can bring this genre back with, with the referential nature of these movies. Yeah, maybe. I feel like it would take someone who is the Mel Brooks of today, you know, who is considered a comedy genius to decide to take on this genre versus what we have a lot now, which are people who are definitely not comedy geniuses. And they're using it as just an easy way to get money and get audiences. Oh, if we made fun of Twilight, everyone's heard of that. Right. People will watch our movie. Um, and that's, that's the wrong way to look at it. And Who I don't is think that that's person, the way that, Josh? sorry. Who do you think that person is? 
I don't know. I mean, it could be. I mean, the people from the state certainly, uh, I think, are at that level, and they've they've worked in this form before. I mean, I don't know. Would it be Judd Apatow or or Seth Rogen or someone like that? I don't know that I would really be excited to see a movie like that from one of those people. But I mean, someone like that who is considered uh, someone who, when they make a comedy, people are excited to see it just because they're the ones who made it. Would have to be maybe, maybe Lonely Island or something. There you go. And Lonely Island has done. I mean, they made Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping, which is a definitely a parody of of music documentaries that uh, mm. has a following. So I think any of those people who come from SNL, where they're doing this on a micro level, you know, in a in a five minute sketch or whatever, have that level of experience that they can maybe bring to making a film version. But it also may just be that this is this is not what audiences in 2020 want, or, you know, like you said, comedy evolves and maybe it's just evolved past this. Well, yeah, that's possible. Let me throw out two other possible names that can do this, Josh. One that we've covered before, Edgar Wright and crew, because we've seen him do it before, you know, Hot Hot Fuzz, which we've covered is a a good Rashawn of the Dead, you know, not necessarily referencing, but playing with the kind of tropes of uh, genres. And then I also think like, It'd be great to see something like this from a female point of view. Maybe the women from Broad City or something could could really do something interesting with this form. Amy Poehler, we know, could play with it. Tina Fey, like you said. But um, it would be nice to see, you know, Abby and Alana do something like this. Yeah, I think so. But at the same time, if I watch a comedy and think the people who made this are hilarious... I'm not thinking, boy, I hope they make a parody movie next. I mean, I don't really care. I mean, yeah, sure. Like, but that doesn't matter to me, right? Like, if they want to do that and they can kick its ass, then that's great, you know? Um, yeah. I'm not, I'm not rooting for it. I'm not clamoring for it either. But, like, I, I would definitely be interested if someone wanted to take it on, you know? Um, yeah, sure. But, I mean, I guess I just think that this is a form that's not – I'm not lamenting the fact that it's it's not at the level of – popularity that it was in 1977. I well, think we're really losing a whole lot. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, you talk about like how movies, you know, over time you build on what's been there and like the form ascends. But, but like you said, this this was the golden age of this stuff. Right. And since then, it's kind of gone downhill, we'd say. Yeah, I think so. Um, but at the same time, I think that in a way makes this movie better then or more you're more able to be appreciated than it was at the time when it was kind of mixed to negative from critics that you can look at this and see the skill that it was made with and compare that to the lack of skill that so many of these movies are made with now and realize how difficult it is to do this well and um again i think that's one of the things that really impressed me with here um you mentioned the scene where he shoots from under the glass table where they're constantly moving stuff around and covering the camera and that's that's a funny sort of a parody of elaborate shots you know and i think that's maybe something that we could have done more with that if he's going to take on the the hitchcock tendency to to create these very difficult elaborate visuals that he could have kind of punctured that a little more. And he does that in that table scene or in the scenes where the the camera is trying to push through a window, uh, which would involve a lot of trickery that we, of course, something now that we would do is CGI and would be very easy to do, but at the time was very difficult. And he makes fun of that. And I appreciated that. Those are kind of film geek moments that you can more 
get enjoyment out of if you've seen a lot of movies or if you've studied movies and, and especially if you studied how to make movies. So I, I like that. And I think that that points to his skill as a filmmaker, which, like you said, is something that's probably underrated. Yeah, I mean, it's um, I don't know. I think he's the he's the greatest. He's the best comic. He's the he's the comic genius of the last century. He's the he's the goat, man. He is it. And even still at age 93, he's still completely relevant, whether it's like the end, this could probably, you know, lead us into the legacy section, but like they're still doing projects based on his work from 40 years ago, because that's how funny that stuff was. And he's still involved with it. Yeah. They're still doing those projects because that's how funny they were or because no one can think of anything else to do. Hmm. No, I mean, that's probably, that's probably one. Hey, we can't yeah, we can't beat it so let's go with what we know is hilarious you know so it's probably yeah. a combination of both yeah but yeah josh if we want to if we want to rate these things um you know if we want to rate this we can we can rate this uh over uh let's see uh five bleeding newspapers it's not bleeding it's just the ink is running the ink okay. is bleeding but no okay so you pick something then buddy no, whatever. It's fine. It's your, it's your, it's your episode, man. I've been. It's I've not been, my uh, episode. It's an entire much, much, show. We're all three of us here. Much like the birds in this movie, I've been shitting on it a lot. So uh, you can. <laughs> all right, uh, we'll we'll do it out of. Uh, Let, let's do five, it out of the five uh, five heaps of bird poop. Then Josh, for you. Okay. So. All right. <laughs> so I'm gonna give it a three out of five. Uh, as much as I've been critical, I still laughed enough, and it was like you said, it's short. It was fun. It, I'm not super memorable, but I enjoyed it well enough. And it did have, like you said, at least some very, very good standout comic moments that are memorable. Yeah, it had, a couple of those scenes, I think, you know, will stick in my mind, definitely. So it's, and, it's fine. Yeah. And, and you know, hey, man, um, look, I get it. You know, it's my pick. You got to jump on it. Just like, uh, you know, hey, I didn't pick the Frighteners. Um, I will give it three and a half, Josh. It's a strong three okay. and a half for me. Uh, like I said, it's not his best movie, but I mean, his best movies are the best comedies of all time. So, like, this is a very strong piece. And, you know, we uh, 1977, when we talk about our major figures, like Mel Brooks is is there, man. He's he's the man. Certainly, he was one of the most important filmmakers working at this time. So, Dave, uh, having revisited this, do you want to give this a rating? Sure. I'll, I'll also go with three and a half like Jason. Um, I, I think while it's certainly not his best, it's got a lot of funny moments. And, you know, it's Mel Brooks. Hey, it is before, Mel Brooks. before we move on, you know who else approved of this movie? Alfred Hitchcock. True, true. Noted comedic genius, Alfred Hitchcock. Alfred well, Hitchcock. You, well, hey, uh, he was, you know the story, right? Mel Brooks has told it on, you know, a number of talk shows and stuff where he, you know, they kind of worked on the script together and Hitchcock had some ideas. One idea that I had read that was really funny that Hitchcock had was, you know, he wanted um, Thorndike to run from the bad guys on like the Golden Gate Bridge and like... He wanted um, him to like jump off like a cliff or the bridge and like jump into a moving boat to get away from the bad guys. But when he lands in the boat, the boat is just pulling into the docks and, and like landing, which is kind of funny. Um, and Mel Brooks liked it, but they said they couldn't fit it in budget wise. But Hitchcock, he had the private screening for Hitchcock when it was done. Hitchcock walked out without saying anything. Mel Brooks uh, figured, oh, no, he doesn't like it. I've 
I messed it up. He's my hero and I blew it. And then the next day, Hitchcock sent over uh, six magnums of Chateau Haute Brion uh, from 1961. Very expensive wine. And he said, I have no anxiety about high anxiety. It's a great movie. So um, that's a beautiful story. And don't ruin it, Josh. No, it's it's nice. And I'm sure I'm sure it meant a lot to Mel Brooks. I think it speaks to one of the problems that he needed that approval. But we talked about that enough. We'll come back instead and talk about. Notice how I said, don't ruin it, Dave. And then he went and had to ruin Uh it. I like ruining. He had to. Yeah, we'll talk about the legacy of high anxiety in a moment. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1977, we've been talking about Jason's pick, Mel Brooks's High Anxiety. And I feel like we talked a lot about the legacy of this movie already, just in the idea of the parody genre and where it's gone since this and how it's kind of gone downhill. I don't know if we want to mention anything else about that whole genre. Well, even Mel Brooks had mixed results after this in the genre, right? Like, you know, uh, history of the world, I think is very funny and Hey, that's pretty awesome. Instead of parodying a movie, I'm going to parody the whole history of the world right there. You know, space balls is, I think his, uh, was at the time his least critically successful but most commercially successful movie when it came out. And then after that, um, you know, he made three more. He's only directed 11 movies. You think like he's so ubiquitous with pop culture. You kind of feel like he made more. But after that, it was Life Stinks, which I never saw, but I don't think anyone likes. Robin Hood, Men in Tights, which was a huge hit um, and is well regarded. And then the last movie he directed was Dracula Dead and Loving It, which I never saw. I yeah, love I that movie. We love <laughs> the that movie. Dracula one, really? I, I yeah. really do love the Dracula one. I, I don't know why people hate it, but I mean, you know, whatever. Me and my taste. <laughs> yeah, I I remember. Uh, like I think I said before, I loved Spaceballs as a kid, and it's one of those movies that I think if I went back to now, I would I would have a lot of affinity for, even if I could maybe see how parts of it were, were stupid. I watched Spaceballs way more than I ever watched Star Wars, as we talked about in our Star Wars episode. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I love Spaceballs, I remember going to see Robin Hood Men in Tights and Dracula Dead and Loving It in theaters and being very disappointed and thinking, these are not funny at all, <laughs> even at the time. So We're not alone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I watched Spaceballs maybe a year or two ago, and I didn't I didn't like it as much. I mean, I liked it as a kid, I'm sure, but like I didn't love it. I didn't think it was great. But hey, man, you know, I mean, the movies that we haven't talked about, the producers, 12 Chairs, we mentioned Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, silent movie. And, you know, that leads right up to high anxiety. Do you have a favorite of the Mel Brooks movies? Uh, I mean, I would say Young Frankenstein. I haven't seen uh, all of them. And I mean, some I haven't seen in a while, but I watched young Frankenstein, not maybe a few years ago now when I was writing a whole series of, uh, blog pieces about Frankenstein movies. And I thought it was fantastic. I was sort of wary going into it because I wasn't sure if like space balls, it might be something that I would look back on and not find as funny, but I thought it was hilarious. So that's probably my favorite. I uh, I think that's a great movie, and, and Blazing Saddles still holds up, even though it needs uh, content warnings on in front of it now to air on any type of network. So, which I think is a fine thing that we've talked about elsewhere. And yeah. I also I remember I remember going to see Blazing Saddles in a theater 
in a, you know, re-release kind of thing. I, when I was, I think when I was in college and looking forward to it because it's considered such a comedy classic and not liking it at all. But um, that was a long time ago. Maybe I would appreciate it more now. Maybe it would uh, help to have that content warning. I don't know. I saw the producers on Broadway, um, not with the original cast, but with like Steven Weber and Roger, what was his name? Roger Bart. He was a bad guy on uh, Desperate Housewives for a while. Oh, yeah. Roger Bart. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember watching it and I was like, it was like uh, one of those like, um, like really eye-opening experiences, just how genius Mel Brooks is, where it's like, oh, he somehow has now done with theater what he was able to do with film, which is playing with the entire form, which whether you think this is successful or not, Josh, like, you know, we, we do, we do acknowledge that he is so smart the way he is able to play with the form and the way he was able to do that with theater, like was so amazing to me that he was able to use the, th- the form of theater as a joke, not just write jokes into the play. Um, I was just so impressed. And and uh, we don't have to talk about the remake of the producer's movie, but um, the original's <laughs> great and the producer's play was great. And Young Frankenstein, you know, got the, the Broadway treatment. And uh, what, what is it now? Are they doing another one now for him on Broadway? Possibly. I don't know. I, I didn't see anything about that, but it wouldn't surprise me if there was going to be a Spaceballs musical or something. There was right, the, right. the Spaceballs animated series that that kind of nobody paid attention to. Um, that was one of the last major things that he did not on stage. Aren't they doing a cartoon? They're doing Blazing Samurai, right? Aren't they doing some weird? Yeah. Like- yeah, that's some very strange animated movie that's been in, in limbo and has had all sorts of weird behind the scenes problems for years. And I, th- it seems like the kind of thing that's going to be disastrously bad. But um, that is that is theoretically happening. And Mel Brooks himself, I mean, I, as you pointed out, he's he's in his 90s. I mean, he's fully justified in retiring. But um, acting wise, the only stuff he's really done in recent years is some voice work. And he is uh, dedicated to appearing in the Hotel Transylvania movies for some reason. Yeah, 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 he is. But also, which my daughter loves, she says her favorite movie is Hotel Transylvania 3, FYI. Um, But that's not true. He did have an amazing season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which the entire arc was based around the producers and how uh, I mean, like it was years ago, so I'll spoil it. How he cast Larry David because the producers had become such a runaway hit on Broadway, it overtook his life, and he wanted to shut down the show. So he cast Larry David because he thought he was the worst actor possible. And the the arc mimics the arc of the producers. It's so smart and amazing. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Like you said, he's he's still there. He's still he's still around. And like I, as you know, I'll watch any documentary about him. Any kind of like. Mel Brooks and Dick Cavett in conversation, anything that there is like he's such a phenomenal storyteller and he has stories about all of these, you know, Hollywood legends. And he tells them so well that it's it's great. And also, you know, in the 80s, like we keep talking about him as a as a comedian. But we when we mentioned David Lynch earlier this year, Eraserhead, you know, who produced who was the producer, who was the guy who gave David Lynch that shot to do uh, the elephant man? Yeah, that's true. I mean, he certainly, I mean, and I think as we see with his appreciation of Hitchcock here, he's not just a comedy guy. He's obviously extremely knowledgeable about film and used his success to to push in those directions with, yeah. with stuff like David Lynch. Um, and I think what you pointed out, the idea when you said 
He only directed 11 movies and it seems like he must have done more because he's such this big presence in comedy. I think his talk show appearances and his his status as sort of like this rock on tour is a big reason why that is, is that people see him uh, and not just behind the scenes, but you know, they see him on screen and they see him talking about his career and all of that so much that we think of him as this constant presence, even if he didn't make as many movies as maybe people would assume that he made. Um, yeah. And I think that's a key element of that. Well, he was also, look, if we're going to go back, like he was there at like the most important moments of comedy of the 20th century, right? He was he was in the Catskills when the Catskills were booming. He was in the writer's room of the Sid Caesar show with every genius, you know, Neil Simon, Woody Allen, Carl Reiner. That's how they met, you know, Larry Gelbart and, of course, Sid Caesar. And then, you know, the 2,000-year-old man, that bit – that's a comedy bit that has lasted 70 years. And the only reason it's not still going is because Carl Reiner died recently at the age of 97. He had a good run there, right? So, you know, um, you know, like who who creates a comedy bit that lasts 70 years, man? Like he's I, I don't know. As I said, he's the goat to me. He's the greatest of all time. And, uh, you know, I think it's cool that his son is also doing some, you know, uh, finding his own voice in the comedic landscape as a as a sci-fi writer a sci-fi comedian a comedy writer there yeah i don't think what max brooks does really qualifies as comedy not that it's bad but it's definitely not comedy um, uh, i'm glad he's working then yeah. no, he's very <laughs> he's very successful i mean world war z was a huge thing but there's nothing funny about world war z do, uh, do you guys feel about mel brooks uh it, it, maybe this is just me or maybe you know maybe it's a jewish thing i don't know but i always thought of him as like kind of a uh, rite of passage for learning about comedy like you get a certain age and that's your entry point to you know going into all of the comedy greats yeah i guess i mean like i said i'm actually kind of mixed on mel brooks as a genius. I understand his importance, but you know, of the Mel Brooks movies I've seen, half of them I didn't really like. So I'm not really the right one to ask, but Jason is a professional comedian. So I used to be Josh, as you know, I'm <laughs> retired now. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, look, you know, my grandfather was a professional comedian for over 60 years and was a huge name in the Catskill circuit. So Dave, there's definitely like a reverence towards that in the Jewish community. And like, knowing the culture and he is like, you know, the way he pokes fun of Judaism and uh, Jew. I don't even want to call them stereotypes because it's true. Like that old man, Josh, that you talk about in the airport during this movie, like that old couple, like they fight about which of their friends is alive and which is dead and who like <laughs> walk like this. Like Dave, you know, that couple, I know that couple oh, that was, yeah. Right. That was our, our grandparents' friends like growing up on, you know, in in the New York suburbs with uh, older Jewish people. So he's just I mean, he's the best, Josh. So I think, uh, like I said, like you like or like you said, Josh, like anything that he does, like interview wise, special wise, I think he does. He's done a few podcasts now, like he might have done Mar Marin and like I've listened Great to all episode, of them. Actually, yeah, mm -hmm. I will watch and listen to all of them like. There was that documentary on HBO where they like uh, repurposed the footage from 30 years ago that was supposed to be a documentary. Like I'll watch every single one of them time and again, man. I think uh, at least briefly, we should mention legacy wise, aside from Mel Brooks, as we kind of talked about Madeline Kahn after this this moment that she had in the 70s, uh, a lot of it working with Mel Brooks. 
uh, her career never really got to that higher level that maybe it deserved. She did a lot of sitcom stuff in the 90s. The only other movie, the non-Mel Brooks movie that came after this that I felt like is one where people really love her is Clue. Although I've never seen Clue, but I know she's supposed to be hilarious in that. Yeah, I've honestly never seen it either. But this whole ensemble, right, they all reached their height with Mel Brooks. Like, um, I know Gene Wilder wasn't in this one and he went on and, you know, had a huge decade in the 80s with the Richard Pryor comedies and some of the other stuff he did on his own. But like Boris Leachman, like you said, enjoying a resurgence in the last I mean, honestly, really 20 years, you know? Yeah, and, it's insane uh, that we think of Cloris Leachman on like Raising Hope, for example, when she kind of came back and had that long sitcom role. And that that show ended years ago. And Cloris Leachman is the same age as Mel Brooks. She's 94. She's still working steadily. She has like three 2020 projects still yet to release. So funny. Like that. She's, she's so funny. Like I remember her on one of those Comedy Central roasts where, of course, you know, whatever she she was reading, what the writers had written for her, but the way she delivered it was so much better than anyone else on that roast. Like she's so hilarious, Harvey Corman, who everyone says is like one of the funniest guys ever, right? Like none of these guys really reached that height um, without that kind of Mel Brooks players, right? Like they did it as a group together. Yeah, I mean, he certainly knew how to use all of their talents in addition to his own talent uh, to their heights. So any other legacy related things you want to mention about this film? This was, well, I mean, we mentioned him as a producer. This was his first producer credit, which is also weird to think about. Yeah, well, I guess, I mean, sometimes with that, it's like he got to the point where he was famous and successful enough that he could demand that, you know, if you're a creative or an on-screen performer, you don't always get to be a producer uh, until you have the clout for it. So I, that, that makes a bit of sense to me. So that is High Anxiety, and that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. Yeah, you can. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Uh, go for Jason.com. Anxiety. Um, and then also we have uh, AwesomeMovieYear.com. We have Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I am at JoshBellHatesEverything.com, which, which uh, much like Jason's site, needs an update. Uh, Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You could check Piecing It Together out wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod and check out our website, PiecingPod.com. Hey, Josh, before we get into what's on next week, do you want to give a recommendation of um, maybe a lesser known Hitchcock movie that uh, people should watch? Oh, shit. I didn't know I was going to do that. have to do that. Well, um, I'll give one. I mean, I'll give one that please. wasn't spoofed in this movie, but was spoofed in an entire different movie, which is Strangers on a Train. That's my probably favorite Hitchcock movie, and it doesn't necessarily get the love that uh, the biggies do. Yeah, Strangers on a Train is great. Um, I maybe I'll, I, you know, we talked about Spellbound. I'd recommend that, the Salvador Dali stuff and Gregory Peck and uh, uh, Ingrid Bergman. I think that's a that's a cool and possibly underrated Hitchcock movie. Maybe Dial M for Murder, which is a later one that he actually originally shot in 3D. Um, that's a cool, fun one as well. So I'm sure there's another one that I could think of if I went through the whole list of Hitchcock, but uh, off the top of my head, I'll recommend those ones. Uh, and I wanna also recommend the Patreon 
featuring Awesome Movie Year, as well as piecing it together, and uh, All Rice, No Beans, and David Rosen's great music, that uh, you can get some bonus content from us on there, as well as those other podcasts. We hope that people will sign up for it. I think we recently uh, set the goal of one new patron. Um, have we achieved that yet, Dave? Not quite, but it's coming. <laughs> All right. Hey, By I'm going to throw something season, else. Yeah, Josh, I'll throw something else out there. If there's yeah. any uh, website designers that want to redo our websites, we'll have you as a special guest on one of our episodes of Awesome Movie Year. <laughs> I don't know why we would do that, but okay. <laughs> Jason, what, what is coming up in our next episode? Josh, it's interesting. 1977, guess what? There was no Sundance Film Festival, so we couldn't pick a Sundance Film Festival winner. But we did find another major award winner, and that would be the winner for Best Musical or Comedy in the Golden Globes. And that's The Goodbye Girl, written by Neil Simon and directed by Herbert Ross, who, if you haven't heard of, he was big time back in the day. That he was. So tune in next time for The Goodbye Girl. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. And remember, folks, be good to your parents because they've been good to you.